Welcome to the American Railroading Podcast, brought to you by the Revolution Rail Group, live from the great state of Texas. We'll discuss a wide range of topics related to the railroad industry, from regulatory items and the challenges our industry faces, to passenger rail excursions, and recognizing U.S. Armed Forces veterans in our industry. Join us as we educate, entertain, and explore the world of American railroading. Here's your host, industry veteran, Don Walsh. Well, hey, welcome everybody to the American Railroading Podcast. I am your host, Don Walsh, and this is a very exciting day for us. This is our first episode of many more to come of the American Railroading Podcast. So as it's new to everyone and not everyone's going to know me, I'd like to take a few minutes and just introduce myself. So I am the president, founder, and CEO of the Revolution Rail Group, who is also our anchor sponsor for the American Railroading Podcast. I've been in the industry a long time. So I originally got into the industry when I was a teenager, believe it or not. I was looking looking for summer work to put some some money in my pocket. I was cutting grass, pulling weeds, painting shutters, cleaning gutters, whatever I could do. And I decided to knock on doors in my neighborhood. So I started going around to folks that I knew first. And I knew of a family in our neighborhood whose dad owned a rail car repair company. And I thought, well, how cool is that? You can make a living playing with trains all day. So I went and knocked on his door and he was so generous. You know, I, I asked if he needed any help around the house. And he said, Donnie, he called me Donnie. He said, I'll tell you what, Donnie, uh, I'll give you some money to pull the weeds in my flagstone walkway. And I knew he didn't really need my help, but it was very generous of him to do that. And that was the beginning of it. You know, I started establishing a relationship with him and his family and then getting to know the business a little bit. And as I got older, he allowed me to come to his shop in Chicago, where I'm from originally, and do work around there, whether it was painting the locker room floors, assembling the lockers, cleaning up junk around there, whatever it may be. But it gave me an exposure to the railroad world. And getting to see trains in person was unbelievable because I got to play with trains as a kid. I mean, every kid loves trains, and I had them around my Christmas tree and that every year. But to see them in person and how massive they are and to be able to climb around on them and, and inspect them and, and then actually getting to sit in the locomotive, that's when I was hooked. That was it for me. And I knew that, the, hey, you can make money doing this and be able to hang around and enjoy uh, something you love so much. I knew that was the industry for me. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, now, today, I am the founder, president, and CEO of the Revolution Rail Group, which is the anchor sponsor of American Railroading Podcast. And it allows me to have a lot of relationships in the industry, being a consultant and a, and a broker and going to all these industry events and allows me to meet, meet folks who have expertise in areas that I don't. And so one of those areas is hazmat. And I want to talk about hazmat today because obviously in uh, the news here recently, we've heard a lot about the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio on February 3rd. And so folks ask me, you know, hey, what are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on that? And I'm quite honest that I'm not an expert in hazmat, but I know someone who is. And I'm really excited to have as our first guest on the American Railroading Podcast, Wendy Buckley. And Wendy Buckley is the founder, president, and CEO of Stars Hazmat Consulting, which I believe is now 12 years old. Her background in hazmat is, is quite extensive. She's worked with the Federal Railroad Administration, the New Jersey Department of Transportation. She's worked with county fire departments as a first responder, hazmat tech, firefighter, and EMT. So thank you for your service. She's also an instructor and trainer for educators and the U.S. military. She's an adjunct professor, also teaching hazmat transportation. She appears monthly on a show on Sirius XM Radio. She publishes a weekly newsletter called Hazmat Chronicle, which is pretty cool. And she's also written a book that's it, available on, on Amazon that's regarding hazmat transportation. And if that wasn't enough, she's also won 24 honors and awards that I even know of. I'm sure there's more than that. Um, <laughs> and of those awards just in last year alone, uh, she's listed as the 10, 10 most successful businesswomen to watch in 2022. Sorry if I'm embarrassing you, Wendy, but this is all pretty cool stuff. 2022 Ben Salem Business Hall of Fame, and also the 20 most inspiring women leaders of 2022. And with that, Wendy, welcome to the to the show, and thank you for being our first guest on the American Railroading Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I hope I can live up to the hype. Well, I have no doubt. <laughs> No doubt whatsoever. So in addition to the amazing background I've talked about, is there anything else you'd like our listeners and, and viewers to know about you? Yeah, the most important thing that I feel um, I do and probably the best thing I've ever done with my career is I help companies do what they do better, right? I help them stay in business. I help them transport, store, dispose of, and handle hazmat safely um, in compliance with regulations. 
industry best practices, and most importantly, making it not only seamless but efficient for their operations so that it's not a burden but part of what they do. You know, hazmat is not their core expertise. Transportation of hazmat is not their core expertise. So, you know, when they bring me in, they get to focus on their core business, whatever that is, and I get to handle that other stuff. And that is my core business. It is my core expertise and that of my team. So um, I absolutely love my job and there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Absolutely. And you can tell. You got this big smile on your face talking hazmat. So pretty cool. And that was actually something I wanted to talk about next is that you clearly love what you do. Uh, what got you into the industry and what do you love about it? Initially, I got into it because of the fire department. Um, you know, my very first call, and I forget it, um, was about 1997. And uh, I was actually not responding to the hazmat part of it. I was just a firefighter at the time. But um, it was very dramatic and exciting. And it was a dangerous wet, wet material, and it was raining. So everything was on fire. It was just so cool. Wow. Um, I doubt the truck driver saw it that way. <laughs> but, right. Um, it was uh, 1918. Did whatever it was, I sure did. Um, so that's that's what got me interested, and that's what got me hooked. And, and you know, I took um, uh, chemical weapons training and stuff like that with the fire department, and that you know that really sparked my interest. So no pun intended. Uh, you know, I got involved with hazmat with with them, and took every class I could get. And then I had the amazing opportunity to be an FRA inspector for hazardous materials, inspecting rail cars and chemical shippers that ship by rail. And uh, honestly, that that sealed my fate. Uh, there's, I fell in love with rail. I fell in love with hazmat, and uh, that's it. That's all I ever want to do. That's awesome. That's great. Now, assuming we have listeners and, and people watching that aren't familiar with what hazmat is, what exactly is hazmat as it relates to the transportation industry? Um, hazardous material is defined as a uh, material that when in transportation is uh, is an un- poses an unreasonable risk to health, safety, and property. Um, and, you know, most specifically, human life and the environment is really what they're getting at. Um, and, you know, that unreasonable part, people get hung up on that. But the whole purpose of all the regulations that go into hazardous materials is to mitigate that sure. risk. So the way we package it, the way we ship it, the quantities we can ship it, the methods we can ship it, all the things we do to communicate those hazards, um, they're all designed to mitigate those risks. And, you know, honestly, hazardous materials has a very, very safe record in transportation, especially mm-hmm. by rail. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about that as we go along today as well. Um, something we see a lot in our industry is people with EH&S titles, right? And I've been in the industry a long time, and, and I know it means environmental health and safety, but I don't really understand. I don't know that everybody does. What is EH&S? So it, it really varies company to company and industry to industry. So there, there's a few versions of it. It's um, SHE, EHSS. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different variations. The bottom line is they're focused on whatever the environmental regulations, health regulations, safety, security, for most people in that field, it generally revolves around hazardous waste, um, air permitting and water permitting, which are the um, uh, permits that allow you to put hazardous materials, well, pollutions, pollutants in the environment. So, you know, um, how you can put into the water, how much you can dispose of that way, how much effluent you can have in the air. Um, that's what most people focus on. Hazardous materials either ends up in the EHS department um, with a dedicated one or two people, typically, or it ends up under logistics. And unfortunately, hazmat is a redheaded stepchild, and there's very few people that actually specialize in it, and that's all they do, and that's their expertise. It normally just gets handed to someone when someone else leaves the company. Oh, that's your job now. Well, and there's quite a few regulatory bodies involved in the oversight of hazardous materials and transportation. So, again, for folks that aren't familiar, what are the regulatory bodies you typically deal with and what is their function? The most important and main one for hazardous materials transportation is the DOT, the U.S. Department of Transportation. And under the DOT, um, they have various modal agencies like the Federal Road Administration is part of the DOT. Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration for Highway, uh, Federal Aviation Administration for Air, um, and uh, then NARAD and the Coast Guard for for vessels. So, uh, and then of course FIMSA, which is uh, the one who writes all the regulations, the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, is also under the DOT, and they're the ones who are responsible for developing all the regulations that we have, which then are enforced by those modal agencies. Okay. So that's the main one. Yeah. Then, if you're in rail transportation, you also have the AA which is an industry trade group that um, 
it has the authority from DOT to govern the design, construction, repair, and maintenance of rail cars, specifically tank cars. Um, you know, there's other types of rail cars that they govern as well, but tank cars is really what the main focus of Hazmat is. Sure. Um, and to some extent, covered hoppers. Um, and then some other ones that we touch on are EPA, mostly for hazardous waste and hazardous substances. And then um, OSHA for workplace safety rules, particularly uh, with our for our purview, is PPE exposure limits. Um, PPE meaning uh, personal protective equipment uh, exposure limits. How long you can be in an area during work day, things like that. Okay, excellent. And there's several steps. We're going back to the rail cars now as a focus. Um, there's several steps required in the process from the time that we load a rail car with a hazardous material to the time that it's put on outbound, delivered to the railroad, to the time that it's in transit on the railroad, to the time that it arrives and gets unloaded. So can you take us through the process of the transportation aspect of it and what steps take place uh, to ensure its safety? Well, what's supposed to take place, the first step is that the rail car has to be inspected. And this is a big issue. And, and part of the reason is it's a very big misunderstanding most of the time. So the railroads have the responsibility to inspect things like safety appliances and safety standards. And that's under the Transportation Safety Act, a law, not a regulation. Okay. It has absolute liability for the railroads, things like wheels, brakes, trucks. Um, basically, the way I like to say it is everything from, uh, speaking of a tank car, everything from below the tank and then also any ladders, handholds, sill steps, walkways. Um, the shipper's responsibility. Safety appliances. Exactly. Safety appliances and safety standards, right? Um, the shipper, uh, the person who's going to, or the company that's going to put that tank car into transportation, load it, and offer it, they uh, they are responsible for anything that keeps the material inside the tank and communicates the hazard. So that would be the shell of the tank, the jacket, insulation, uh, making sure all that's in sound condition. Then most importantly, all the valves, fittings, and closures, meaning where you load the liquid, where you put in the air or let the air out, um, where you can take temperatures and gauge how much is in there and um, unload it uh, from, you know, from the bottom outlet if it has one. All of those things are the number one concern that shippers have. Then communicating the hazard would include placards, markings required on the rail car for hazmat purposes, as well as markings required on the car uh, under the AAR and, and uh, FRA regulations. So, like the um, the vehicle number, which is the you know uh, usually typically four letters and and yep. four to six numbers most of the time, three to six times mm -hmm. uh, that identify that rail car like a serial number. Yeah. Um, and then uh, some information about when it was last inspected and stuff like that. Yeah, I tell people that aren't familiar with our industry that the reporting marks are like a license plate number, for lack of a better way of putting it, it identifies the owner and the car in their series. So. And uh, and then I tell people, too, that are even the least bit curious that the, the X on the end means that it's a private car. And if there's no X, it means it's a railroad-owned car. And it's like, ooh. And then when they're sitting in traffic and the train's going by, they're like, I, I noticed all these private cars. <laughs> so it gives them something to do when they're sitting there stuck by a train. Railroads don't own any tank cars. So they own flat cars and box cars and hot oh, No, I mean. Yeah, yeah. and, and no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you completely. And I'm just saying, just so people know, tank cars are wholly owned by private entities, sometimes finance companies that are just doing it for investment and then leasing out to other people. And then sometimes they're owned by companies themselves who own them and operate them. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Yep. So the documents that are submitted to the railroad, um, like the bill of lading, right? So that includes a code identifying the commodity. How important is it to have that code correct? And what could, what are the possible ramifications of it not being correct? I think we're talking about the four digit identification numbers. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Make sure we were talking about the same thing. So that four-digit code, and it's usually preceded by a UN or an NA. If it's a UN, meaning it means United Nations, okay. and that indicates that that number is going to be the same number for that material all over the world, okay. no matter where you ship it, how you ship it, how much you ship, it's always going to be the same. So if I ship, you know, gasoline, it's going to be UN twelve hundred three, whether it's here in the U.S., Canada, Japan, China, Russia, whatever. Um, and so. The other thing that that UN number does, besides identifying the material, regardless of the language spoken, it also is the main thing used by emergency responders. So anyone who's been around a long time will remember when we used to write what we call the basic description, the information that describes that material in our shipping papers, we used to start with a proper shipping name, mm -hmm. gasoline, mm -hmm. diesel, crude oil, whatever. Yeah. 
But a few years ago, I say a few, oh, probably over a decade, <laughs> um, uh, they moved the proper shipping name further down, and now the UNID number is always listed first. Okay. Because that's what drives emergency response. Um, you know, because as, as you may have heard or you may know, one misspelled word or one different letter can completely change what the product is. So by going by sure. the number, it really reduces the possibility of uh, misunderstandings, miscommunications, and potentially uh, catastrophic mistakes. So yeah. that UN number drives everything. So what the, what the fire department does, what the police do, what the EPA does on scene, what cleanup crews do on scene, um, you know, whatever is involved in an incident is all managed by that number. No. Hazardous materials are transported by rail every day, and for the majority of the time, they're they arrive safely and they're done so safely. God forbid there is a derailment and there's a product release. Can you walk us through the steps that are to take place from the time that the release happens to the time that there's remediation or cleanup? So that, of course, I mean, Don, you know that's going to look very different depending on what the incident is and how serious. Sure, things but at get. a high level. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have derailments in this country every single day, several times a day, um, but they're usually non-incidents, right? Then we have things like East Palestine, which are major disruptors. So in general, um, the first thing that they're going to look for is, is there any hazmat on the train and has any of it leaked? Um, If it hasn't leaked yet, is it in danger of leaking? Because certain things like, for example, ethanol, um, if you tip over some ethanol rail cars, they may not leak right away but they can degrade their gaskets relatively quickly. So in a few hours or even a day, they may start leaking, okay. which if once the ethanol starts pooling, it doesn't take a whole lot for that to catch fire. And then you can end up with a, a pretty serious fire situation. And, and that has happened numerous times. You know, um, they want to know what's in the train. They want to know um, where in the train that stuff is, which one of the cars have derailed. Um, and, and what the risk is. So once they know what the material is, that'll tell them, you know, do we need to evacuate? Do we need to shelter in place? Do we need to um, put booms out to protect waterways or sensitive uh, uh, ecological structures? So um, so they'll take those those methods. Now, if there's a fire involved, obviously that takes precedence over everything else, except for um, whatever protection methods for the public will be needed, like evacuations or shelter in place. Um, Fire, obviously, is going to be the, the most pressing concern. Um, and then, of course, they're going to monitor any fire situation for a levy, for example, which is a an excess pressure event that causes a mechanical explosion of the package, in this case, the, the tank car. And that can send pieces of the tank car flying up to mile and a half, two miles away, which has also happened. Um, and so managing those conditions, which are not uncommon to a fire, um, are, is also a very high priority. Um, and then, of course, once the incident's over, everyone is, is safe, the fire is out, the leak is contained. The next step is, okay, how do we get this stuff out of here? So um, if there's material left in the cars, sometimes it burns off entirely, right? Um, but sometimes it doesn't spill at all. So they may need to offload it before they can re-rail the cars and, and tow them out of there. So. Um, if they need to offload it, they're going to have to figure out how they do that. Are they going to be able to put it in one other rail car, or are they going to need to move it into trucks? You know, there, there's a bunch of different ways they can do that. So they'll need to offload the car if there's still material in it, and then they have to get the cars back upright. And if they're capable of moving under their own power, they'll do that. If they're not, then they will usually put them on a flatbed or some other conveyance to get them out of there. They can put them on a train. They can tow them on certain types of trucks, um, depending on what the situation is. Um, and so then the next step is to make sure that there's any soil remediation or water remediation that has to happen has happened. If it's ground contamination, they will usually have to scoop it out with backhoes and bulldozers and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, if it's water, if it's something that floats, they may be able to contain it. If it's something that sinks, they may have to dredge. Um, so it just depends on what the contamination is and what the seriousness of it is. Um, so then the next step would be to put the rail back together, right? They need to, to rerun the rail line so that the traffic can continue to go. And some people see that as insensitive, but the reality is this stuff has to move, not only freight, but people. Um, so sometimes commuter lines or, or Amtrak lines are shared with freight lines. And if you have a rail line go down and you can't move people either, that's people that can't get to work. So it's not just about freight, but it is also about freight. 
right? So, you know, we all want our Amazon packages to show up on time. Uh, We want gas in our cars at the gas stations, but that stuff all moves by rail. (laughs) Yes, indeed. You know, this whole time during this whole process, there's tons of different people and tons of different agencies on scene doing different roles. The most important one um, in the back that's happened, that happens in the background, excuse me, is root cause analysis. They got to figure out what happened, why it happened, and what made it as bad yes. as it was or what could have made it worse so that they can prevent those things from happening in the future. And some of the more serious incidents can result uh, eventually in regulatory changes so that it doesn't happen again. Hopefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we know there's several options, or at least I would think there's several options of how we do the cleanup. How do we do the remediation? And you talked about there being several um, entities oh, yeah. involved. So is that decision made by one entity or is that decision made collectively amongst the entities that are there? Like the EH, EH&S, Fire Department, a hazmat company, perhaps the local government. I mean, is everyone involved in that decision? Unfortunately, sometimes, yes. Um, and it really shouldn't be. It should be left to the subject matter experts. Let me tell you something. Companies like Norfolk Southern uh, involved in the East Palestine development or the other railroads um, and the emergency responders that come on scene, and I don't mean the firefighters, I mean the cleanup people, um, companies that, that come out and will offload that product and will uh, transfer and do their meet the soil remediation, stuff like that. They're the experts, right? They know more about the material than the local government's ever going to know. They know more about emergency response and how to, how to mitigate the incident than the local fire departments are ever going to know because they deal with it all the time. Those local firefighters may never have seen anything like this before, which is one thing that the East Palestine guys said over and over and over again. Um, you know, we have rail go through here all the time, but it doesn't, doesn't, this doesn't happen, so we're not experienced in dealing with this. And the best scenario is that people recognize where they bring strength and, and what their weaknesses are and, and that other people can offer those strengths. And the decisions for how to clean that up and how to mitigate the hazards are best left to those who know what they're doing and who do it all the time as opposed to, um, you know, the local entities who, yes, they, they have a vested interest in the people, but really don't have a, anything of true value to provide in that yeah, moment. Absolutely. Now, the the derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, the decision was made to, for lack of a better way, I don't know what the right terminology is, but the, lack, the, the decision was made to do a controlled burn, I guess you would call it, of the product. And again, I am not a hazmat expert. I'm not familiar with how this is done. So, how how does that conclusion uh, come about, and is this a common practice? And if so, what is the what is the thought process behind it? What is what are they trying to achieve by burning it rather than some other method? First of all, this was a very very difficult decision for the people involved um, because this was not without risk. In fact, it was extremely risky. However, um, they are experts, and and I have um, I have. Since that incident, gotten some information from the people that were on scene to understand why they made such a risky decision. Because um, knowing that that's what they concluded that they had to do, I knew it had to be the the best worst option, and it it was not a good one. But given what they were facing, it was. So a control what what they were faced with was a product called vital chloride, um, and what that material does is it will polymerize. And this material is made, is used to make PVC piping, which, as you know, is kind of a hard plastic material. Um, so when this material is shipped in a liquid form, it's shipped with a stabilizer in it. And that stabilizer is usually calculated to last 10 days, but it degrades quickly under heat. So the more material that you use or the, the warmer it's going to be during the transportation, the more inhibitor you need to use. So if you're going to ship it in the summer, you're going to use more inhibitor to make it last 10 days than you would if you're going to ship it in the winter. Um, so when they calculated this, they didn't take fire into consideration because that's not normal. Um, so and, and no one takes fire into consideration when, when preparing inhibitor. You just don't. You, you prepare for normal transportation. So what happened was once your stuff started heating up in this fire situation, it the inhibitor obviously... Um, was no longer available and the material started to polymerize and started to have the chemical reaction that that it has and that means it started solidifying and so what they originally tried to do uh, was what we call hot tapping basically once they discovered this um, this material was polymerizing and there's the heat being created and pressure being created the, they wanted to release that unfortunately the pressure relief device was not working on the car which is 
built into design to relieve pressure. The car was not upright. So the material, the liquid was laying on the pressure relief device. So every time the device tried to activate, it would clog the valve. And so eventually it was solid and there was nothing never going to work. So by hot tapping it, they basically drill into the side of the car, a little more complicated than that, but I'm going for simplicity. And, and they attach a valve that way to be able to get the liquid out. Unfortunately, every time the material got exposed to air, they had the exact same problem. It would polymerize, solidify, and, they, and the hot tap was no good. They, they tried hot tapping at least three times that I know of. Um, so they, um, so the only, you know, after all the decisions, after everything that they tried and this, this material quickly degrading, um, they had really no choice. Um, they had to get the pressure out because the pressure was increasing. And if they didn't get the pressure out of that car, the only thing that was going to happen is what we call a bloody boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. Basically, as you know, if you think about pot of water on your stove, as you heat it up, steam is released. Well, if that steam has nowhere to go, then pressure gets created. If you put a pot, a, a lid on a steaming pot, you'll hear it rattle because the pressure is lifting it. Well, imagine if that had nowhere to go, eventually that lid would go flying, right? It says the same thing with a rail car. If you can't let the pressure out, it's going to eventually explode. And that's when we get the material, the rail car pieces flying, you know, a mile and a half, two miles away. So that was why the governor and the, the local jurisdiction said, you must get out. If you don't evacuate, you will be arrested. If you have children in a house that's not evacuated, you'll get child, child endangerment. Those are some pretty harsh words to hear. That's a pretty harsh words for an elected politician to say. So I hope everyone understood that the reason he was saying that is because it was absolutely a very volatile and dangerous situation. So what they ended up having to do is they took, they took small explosives and put a hole in the rail car drained it into a ditch that they had dug that would um, funnel the material away from the rail car, and then they set it on fire to burn it off. It was not a great option because vinyl chloride, when it burns, does emit a small amount of phosgene, which is a quasi inhalation hazard. And so that's what the concern is with everyone that's now feeling the, the effects in the near term. The long-term concern is that it's also a carcinogen. Uh, vinyl chloride is a carcinogen, meaning it's a cancer-causing agent. So you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, these people could potentially end up with cancer. And, you know, the material that leaked on the ground before they were able to burn it off is now going to be going down into the soil and eventually groundwater. Um, and then, unfortunately, it does not break down at that point. And so once it gets into the groundwater, um, every time people turn on their tap, they're going to be putting vinyl chloride into their homes, into their drinking water, into their bathtubs, into, you know, whatever washing your clothes in it, um, not not where you want to be. So it is a de very definite hazard yeah. for these people. And now the EPA has said that everything seems to be safe to this point. And, and of course, we're hoping that that continues. Are there things that uh, folks can continue to do, to uh, whether it's the EPA or whomever, to um, continue to make things even safer, whether there's further remediation that needs to be done or water purification needs to be done? Are you familiar with what could be done as next step? So this is a a, a very sensitive question. Um, and there's there's a lot of possibilities. <clears throat> but the the ultimate decision is going to end up being not only um, a scientific one, but also most dramatically a political one, right? Because the remediation efforts are going to require someone to make some effort and, and do something, which is going to cost a lot of money. So um, what can be done for the people is closely monitor your health. Try not to let the psychosomatic symptoms um, take over. You know, try to try to make sure that you are not getting yourself so nervous and excited that you're causing symptoms that wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, you know, there may be some real health effects from this stuff, but it's not going to do you any favors to focus on it and, and worry about it and stress about it because that's going to make everything worse. And stress and concern and worry can really cause visible health effects, like things that you can actually see. Um, but um, so in terms of what ends up happening, you know, obviously the best case scenario is that the people don't have to live there anymore, but that means they're giving up homes and families and neighbors and jobs. So it's not an easy decision for anyone. This is 
this is not there's no good answer here unfortunately yeah. well thank you for such detailed information that 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 really sheds a light on that recently the national transportation safety board chair jennifer homedy and i apologize jennifer i messed up if i messed up your last name but she was recently quoted as saying uh, referring to derailments that we call these things accidents there are no accidents every single event we investigate is preventable um there's According to the AAR, the Association of American Railroads, there's over 623 freight railroads operating on 140,000 miles of railroad track, most of which is done safely. Uh, most of the time, I think it's 99.99% of the time. Um, so is is it really 100% avoidable every accident? Is it 100% avoidable on 140,000 miles of rail with 623 railroads operating on them? I know Jennifer Hamadi had met her several times, and I have a lot of respect for her, but in this case, I don't agree. Um, in a perfect world with perfect conditions and unlimited resources, yes, we could prevent every accident, right? But um, just me, personally, I- I'm a safety professional, but I'm ridiculously clumsy in real life, and I trip over things, and I walk into things. It just happens. Um, is it preventable? I guess theoretically, but, <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, it's, if we had an unlimited number of rail inspectors uh, at the railroads and, and at FRA, and if we had um, all the money in the world and could have all the track be pristine and we could have every rail car be brand new with, you know, the best possible options in terms of valve fittings, closures, the best trained employees at every step of the way um, with people that have been there by 20, 30 years, not two months, which seems to be the case after COVID that everyone's new. <laughs> um you know, in a perfect world, if all of those things were right, yes, we could prevent everything, but that's not reality. Um, you know, uh, you know, especially in a post-COVID world, we've had a huge amount of turnover in this industry. You know, all the people that we used to have that knew how to do this stuff and have been at those companies for 20, 30 years, they've all gone on now. They've retired or moved on to other companies where they're not exposed to, to this stuff. And the people that are now doing these jobs are pretty new. In fact, I have one client who has over 30 people in their environmental health and safety department, and not one of them has ever been in this industry longer than two years. Um, that's crazy to think about, but it's the norm right now. So, no, I don't think they're all preventable um, in, in reality under rea- real life conditions. Well, and then you have acts of God, you know, where it could have been a storm that blew through an area that washed out some of the ballast, you know, that without yeah. having drones everywhere, you're not going to not going to see that. And I, and I do hope with modern technology continuing to advance and our industry continuing to embrace more and more technology, we'll get there someday. But uh, I agree today we may not be there yet. You know, well, the trends over the last 50 years, I mean, is a dramatic decrease in the number of rail incidents and even more importantly, a even larger increase in the amount of derailments that led to a release of hazardous materials. Um, it, it's gone, yeah. I mean, every year it goes down. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're never going to hit zero, but we are ever searching for zero. FRA, AAR, the railroads, all the shippers, everybody is on that journey to get as close to zero as possible. And honestly, the percentages that we've already hit were unimaginable 30 years ago, 20 years ago. So they've made some incredible progress. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And and as I was telling someone the other day that I don't know everybody in this industry, but I know a lot of folks in this industry. And I started out on the ground floor myself uh, fixing rail on a track crew, uh, which is backbreaking work. You know, and I've, I've worked in the rail car repair shops and that. And not one person I've ever met says, gee, you know, when they wake up in the morning, gee, I'd like to make a mistake today. Uh, everyone's out there making an effort. Everyone's doing the best to be as safe as they possibly can. And I, I have no doubt. And uh, I love every one of them for it. Speaking of numbers, so I wanted to share some good news. And and there is some good news. And, and you've re- just referred to it with some of the uh, the percentages that we're seeing that we've never seen before in a good way. So uh, according to the, a report from the Association of American Railroads, otherwise, as we knowingly love them as the AAR on AAR.org, there is a report called the Rails Safety Record. And the derailment rate, according to that report, for all railroads is down 31% since 2000, which is incredible. Uh, the per carload hazmat accident rate is down 78% since 2000 and is the lowest ever based on preliminary data from the Bureau of Explosives. 
Surface Transportation Board Chairman Marty Oberman, I believe it was uh, last week, was quoted as making several statements in a press conference. It was March 15th, actually, uh, regarding the STB's approval of its merger of the merger of the KCS and CP. For those that don't know, those are Class One railroads, and how the merger will have no negative impact on safety due to potential increased train volumes because people were saying, "Oh, geez, you know, we're going to see more train volumes, so that is inherently more risk." Well, not according to Mr. Oberman. He said in part, and I quote, the Bureau of Transportation Statistics documented last year, 2022, that 94% of all hazardous material spills occurred on truck and only 1% occurred on rail. He said, so if we were um, trying to make sure communities all over the country are safer, you would want to move more of this material by train rather than by truck. And we had to be realistic when we talk about what are these hazardous materials. Many of them are the foundation of our economy. And and coming from Mr. Oberman, who I've met several times, he's not one to pull punches. So if he feels that that there's something going on that needs to be addressed, he's going to say it. And I think you'll agree with me on that. So for him to come out and say this, to me, spoke volumes um, where he's saying, hey, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about concerns that people have, but we want to put the facts out there as well to put some folks' minds at ease. And uh, so I I think that 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 was a great quote from him. And if you'll allow me to go one step further to, to build on what he said, I've heard so many people stating, you know, get this stuff off the rails, get it out of my neighborhoods, you know, the, the, these bomb trains, they called it when it was crude oil, you know, and everybody wants to push it off the rails. But here's the problem. As you just said, many of these materials are the foundation of our economy, but even more than that, hazardous materials uh, is used to either make everything that we have or it's part of everything. So hazardous materials goes into making computers. It goes into the gasoline we use to drive our cars. It goes into every piece of material on the car. It goes into the clothes we're wearing. Um, you know, you think about anything that you're doing, talk about your cell phone, that's a hazardous material. And it's also made from hazardous material. So even the food that we eat is often hazardous materials or made from pesticides and sexicides and herbicides, even the fertilizers. But, you know, concentrated fruit juices, for example, um, to make the, the juice we have with our breakfast are hazardous materials when they're concentrated. So, you know, See, that's, that eliminate. blows my mind right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we can't eliminate this stuff. We can't get away from it. You know, better, better living through chemistry, as they, as they used to say. So if you tell people they can't move it on the rail, it's not like it's going to stop moving. they got to go by another mode of transportation. Right. Where's it going to go? It's got to go by truck. And as you just pointed out, not only is truck far more likely to have an accident and leak hazardous materials. But also for every tr- for every rail car that you eliminate, you now have to have three to four trucks to carry that same amount of material. So now you're not only pushing it off a much more safe mode of transportation, but now you have a lot more of them clogging up our highways and driving next to the school buses that hold my children and all those, you know, everyone else is, a, is an idiot driver, right? So now all those idiots are going to be next to all these hazardous <laughs> materials. So uh, you keep thinking about that, and it's really much better off. Sure, and, and we're not trying to bash on our brothers and sisters in trucking, by the way. Uh, neither of us are. We're just simply stating the data. Not right. We're That's just simply not. stating the data, and uh, and, and there's yeah. some more data Absolutely. for you. Ready? I work in the trucking industry, too. As a matter of fact, the, the radio show I have is on radio, so, um, you know, uh, trucking is, is a love, too. So definitely not bashing the truck guys. That's well, right. Wait. We're just simply sharing the data for sure. So some more of that data from the Association of American Railroads. Uh, there's this. This was astonishing to me. I didn't realize there was this much freight going on. But there's 1.7 billion tons of freight moved across the, those railroads we talked about earlier in a typical year. That's a lot. And again, per the AAR, uh, this was a statement. Um, in, I forget if I think it was the same the same uh, rail safety record, but on AAR.org. If railroads didn't operate in the U.S., this is mind-blowing, it would take 99 million additional trucks on our roads at four times the fuel used versus rail to handle the freight that Americans rely on every day. That absolutely blew my mind. And then there was a, an article from Credit Suisse that was put out um, this Sunday, the 19th of March, 
And it says, the data is clear. I'm quoting from their article. Uh, the data is clear. Rails are relatively among the safest modes of transportation. Our analysis of the data from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics and the Federal Railroad Administration shows that rails have an accident rate of 0.04 incidents per million transit miles, a rate far lower than 2.48 accidents per million miles for trucking. And I never, I never realized that. So it is significantly a, a, re, a safe mode of transportation for our products. Yeah. Um, so if you think about it, you know, you have intermodal freight, which is in containers. So those containers are what we see on semi-trucks, right? Those uh, 20 or 40 foot containers hold all kinds of different freight. And if you have a five pack well car on a train that can hold 10 of those trailers potentially in a double stack train. Um, so that's 10 trucks you're taking off the road for that portion of the journey. And think about that. That's 10 trucks that you don't need on the road because you have yeah. one rail car, one. And if you have, you know, a hundred right. or 200 right. car train, you can do the math. And that's, that's just an enrolled train. So, you know, with tank cars, it's three to four trucks per tank car that you would need to replace that tank car. It's, it's substantial. And you can move with, you know, just right. a few locomotives, you can move one to 200 rail cars. And yeah, you definitely can't move that much with one uh, truck Absolutely. So what would you say as an expert in hazmat, which you are clearly, what would you say is the most common misconception regarding hazmat that people have? I love it when people refer to hazmat as chemicals um, and they say, you know, chemicals are bad. I got news for you. Us human beings are 100% made from chemicals. Everything that we touch is a chemical. Everything we breathe, everything we drink, all of it are chemicals. Just because they are synthetic or just because they are um, natural doesn't make them any more or less dangerous. I mean, in every piece of granite that exists, there is some level of natural uranium, which is a radioactive material. Um, perfectly natural everywhere, and yet, you know, it'd be, it'd be kind of dangerous. So, um, you know, People have to understand that, like you said, the safety record is amazing. Hazardous materials are critical to the way we live. Um, and, you know, it's really, really important if you are a shipper of hazardous materials or a carrier and that you pop properly train your people. There has been this big push for um, computer-based training and webinar-style training as opposed to in-person training. And I, I get it. I get why they're doing it. it. It reduces travel. It reduces, you know, then thereby their carbon footprint. It reduces the costs. You know, it's cheaper to do a webinar than it is to do an in-person training. But as the cost goes down, so does the value. So people that take computer-based training, honestly, I myself have done it when I'm taking a computer-based training class. I've got it on one screen while I'm doing something else on the other screen and just clicking through once in a while when I have to. Um, you know, if it's a webinar style training, you know, I, I can put it on mute and be listening to some other conference call or, you know, typing something else rather than really focusing on what I'm needing to do. When my company does uh, uh, in-person training, for example, we always include hands-on training. Um, the value that our clients get from hands-on training, and I'm not doing something to sell my company, I'm, I'm just saying the value that they get out of that hands-on training is so much greater than what they would get out of a computer-based training and even a webinar training. We teach webinars too. Um, so I, I do speak from experience there. And that investment is so worth it because if you don't put that investment in, then you get mistakes. And mistakes lead to these emergencies and crises that we've been seeing so frequently this year in the news. It's been ridiculous how many have been incidents there have been lately. Yeah, absolutely. And this is me thinking more broadly as just across all industries. What would you say is the most common hazmat mistake that people make? I would say they fail to appreciate the importance of it. They become complacent. They work with this stuff every day. As a matter of fact, I was in a, a client of mine that manufactures dynamite, believe okay. it or not. And, um, you know, they, they're around every day. So they're walking around like it's nothing where I'm afraid to sneeze, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. You know, especially, you know. <laughs> in the petroleum industry, I, I see this a lot, and I'm not I'm not bashing any particular industry, but I'm just saying it's a place where I see it a lot, where they're working around gasoline and right. diesel fuel and you know uh, propane and, and, and these types of things, and and they they forget that these things are dangerous for a reason. It's just something that they deal with every day. You know, I've seen 
uh, employees working around corrosive materials without closing up their protective equipment. And, you know, they've got splashes on their pants where it's gotten bleached out from this stuff and they don't think anything of it. Well, you know, what's under those pants is your skin. Um, you know, so it just biggest mistake that people make is, is becoming complacent and forgetting that this stuff really is dangerous. Yeah. It causes damage to your body. It can cause death. It can cause short-term and long-term injury. Um, you know, there's no, this is not, you know, this is not something to take lightly. The, the vast majority of personal injuries on the job happen in the beginning of someone's career or at the end of someone's career. In the beginning, due to ignorance, and in the end, due to complacency. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was at a site one time that it was a young man climbing underneath a rail car. Um, the, the facility produced a food-grade oil. And he was laying under a car, and he comes out, and he says, hey, can, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, can you please ask you know, the management to – to put something down on the ground because my skin burns every time I go down there. And I said, really? And I saw a white powder all over the ground. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, I don't know. They tell me to throw it down to absorb the fat. And I asked management what that was, and it was caustic soda powder. And I said, how do you not tell your employees that? You know? So I think it's it's also... Well, and it, so it's it's also you know making sure that leadership understands the importance of communicating with your employees uh, how to operate safely because uh, the the bottom line uh, shouldn't be the determining factor, right? Well, let's let's take that one step further just for a second. What about the fact that management is putting a corrosive material on the working surface that these guys are on every day? So that tells me that whoever made the decision to do that operates without knowing what's really happening happening in the field. They've never been out there and watched what's going on to know that, oh, you know what, if we tell them to absorb the fat with this stuff, they're going to be crawling around in it. Let's think of a different plan. This isn't going to work. So they, somebody made that decision in a, in a corporate yeah. office and never seen the reality. So operating in a vacuum can be That's very dangerous. That's right. And, and that leads me to my next thought is, based on the data, we're doing a lot of things right as an industry. Um, but surely we can do, be, be doing some things better. So what can we in the railroad industry be doing better regarding hazmat? Specifically rail, specifically hazmat, the most important thing that I see every single time I go to a new client is there is a misunderstanding about what the shipper's responsibility is and what the railroad's responsibility is. And the reason that matters is because over and over again, I see the shipper focus way too much on the things that are absolute liability for the railroad and not nearly enough on the things that will actually get them hurt, killed, or in trouble. Um, you know, they there's a belief that if, if they don't use a particular valve or fitting, that they don't have to touch it, they don't have to check it, they don't have to inspect it. Well, that's not true. In fact, every single thing on that rail car, that shipper responsibility, is your liability if it goes out the door and it's not right. Um, but more importantly, let's take an example of a, a client I had who had a truck uh, situation. A tank truck loaded with corrosive material. It was a liquid, and um, they pull up to a stoplight, and the, the liquid slashes as liquid does. And unfortunately, when it was loaded, the truck driver, in this case, did not close the manway properly, but where he had loaded the material through. So when it sloshed, it sloshed right up out of the top of that truck and all over the car next to him, which was filled with four teenagers. Thankfully, they had their windows closed and didn't really mm. get exposed to it very much. But if that had been a summer day, it might have been different. There was definitely damage to the car. The car was pretty significantly damaged, but thankfully the children were okay. They, you know, they didn't think to inspect that again before it went out the door. That led to huge fines for them, not to mention whatever the lawsuit was over the, you know, the potential injury for that for those kids. So, you know, check it when it comes in before you load it or unload it. Check it before it goes out to make sure you close everything properly. You know, if, if a valve is leaking, it's leaking. It doesn't matter if it's a little leak or a big leak. If it's leaking, it's leaking, and it shouldn't be going out there. Agreed. Door. And I'm also a big fan of pre-trip inspections in general. You know, have somebody walk walk the line up, not just the top of the car, you know, where the valves in that are, particularly a tank car, um, but walk walk the whole thing and see if you see anything, and if you do, report it, and uh, and go from there. But uh, but I agree. What? And I know you're gonna love this question. Ready? <laughs> what is your biggest pet peeve regarding hazmat? Oh, yeah, you and I kind of talked about this one a little bit yesterday. Um, the, the thing 
And, and it goes back to everything that I've said today. Everything that we've talked about is, is all kind of tied together in this one point is when companies don't appreciate how important this stuff is, they tend to mm-hmm. say, that, that's just something we have to do. So let's push it off over here. So, so often I see the role of hazmat transportation or hazmat responsibilities get put onto someone who has no knowledge about it and no um, expertise whatsoever, but they happen to be doing something sort of related. So we're just going to make them do it. Um, and the vast majority of companies that I go into, and these are big companies with big names. We're not talking about the mom and pops here, but they assign hazmat responsibility and, or even sometimes hazmat rail responsibilities to someone who's never seen a rail car or to someone who spent their whole career doing air permitting and now they've just gotten assigned this or maybe they do logistics. I've even seen it be handled one time by the janitor's department and another time by the lawyers. The lawyers had no clue how to do it. They know the law. They don't know what we're supposed to do in the field. Yeah. So, you know, um, making sure that when you assign these responsibilities, you know, the vast majority of time, this should be a full-time job. Most people assign it as one of 15 other duties that this person has. Um, but even if it's someone who does other stuff, make sure they have time to focus on it. Make sure they have the proper training, the proper expertise, the proper experience, and most importantly, to know their limitations. Know what they don't know so they can find someone else who does, either an outside consultant or someone within the company that they can ask. Um, you know, shoot, even somebody at your suppliers or at your customers or, heck, if you have to, a competitor. Um, and, you know, the government sure. has a number that you call, but they can only give you so much. They can't tell you what the regulation says. They can't tell you how, to, how it works in the real world or how to apply it or uh, anything like that. So, so they have some limitations. But know what you don't know. That's number one advice. And when you're assigning these roles in the company, make sure it's somebody who knows what Absolutely. they're doing. Absolutely. Well, we're getting close to the end of our episode, believe it or not. And uh, so I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that we haven't covered already uh, that you'd like to share with our audience before we go. No, I mean, you know, if um, if I can answer any questions for someone, uh, whether it's about a particular situation or a regulatory question, I am more than happy to do so. It's what I do. Um, so please, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. Or if you have follow-up questions, Don, I'm happy to, to answer those for you as well. So, you know, if your customers come to you and ask you something, please, by all means, reach out to me. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And I really appreciate your time today as well. And if someone does want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, of course, you can always call. So we have a toll-free number. It's 844-88-STARS. Um, we have a local number. 352-200-5017. I had to look up at my sticky notes. I didn't get it wrong. Um, our website. <laughs> Good thing you got those. <laughs> yeah, I always have to check. I'm always afraid I'm going to say it wrong. But um, And then our website is starshasnet.com. And, of course, I'm on LinkedIn, Wendy Buckley. So please look me up. Stars also has a, a page on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, I'd be happy to That's great. You. Thank you so much, Wendy. You've been a wealth of information. I know our listeners and viewers are really going to appreciate what you've been able to share with us today. Uh, it's been a blessing to have you on my first episode. Uh, will you be willing to come back again for another episode? Absolutely. Um, you know, we're going to have to celebrate, at least at the one-year mark, if nothing else, right? We have to celebrate your, your the anniversary of your first episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Looking forward to that. Well, Wendy, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and look forward to seeing you at the, at the next conference we run into each other at for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the time, Don. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Well, folks, that is the end of episode number one of the American Railroading Podcast. So thank you for joining us today. And I take I want to take a minute and say thank you to my mom and dad because they're watching their first episode of a podcast ever. I'd like to think that's because I'm on it (laughs) and I may be showing them how to do that. That's okay. I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they watched and we'll look forward to having them along with all of you as future podcast listeners and dedicated subscribers to the American Railroading Podcast. So with that, God bless, make it a great day and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the American Railroading Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on a future episode or want to support or sponsor the show, please visit our website at AmericanRailroading.net. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on the American Railroading Podcast.